The Joan and Bill Hanks Center for the Catholic Intellectual Heritage at Loyola University Chicago is proud to support Jesuitical. Hanks Center events for this fall include the Poets of Presence Conference, featuring renowned poet Christian Wyman, a dialogue with the Sant'Egidio founder, Dr. Marco Impagliazzo, and their annual Tehard lecture given by Father Patty Gilger. For the full lineup and information about upcoming events, please visit www.luc.edu ccih. And welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast from American media for saints and sinners. Join us each week for honest conversations about the Catholic Church and our world today, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. So do you think we should, like, pass around which one of us is a saint and which one of us is a sinner based on our performance in each episode? <laughs> like, it's an award we give out at the end, or... I like that. Or we could have the, the audience vote. Can there only be one? Could we both be saints each week or in both sinners most week? I feel like we want to connect with both parts of our audience, so it'd probably be better if both right. were represented. I'm gonna, I'm, I'll take sinners Thank this you. week. I appreciate next that. Next and the following week <laughs> after that. Um, but we have a great show coming up for everybody, saints and sinners alike. Yeah, we have a really fascinating conversation this week with Maribel Laguna. She is the founder and owner of Core Sacrum Counseling and Consulting. And what she does is when uh, people are joining a seminary, she is part of the counseling team that you know, evaluates their uh, psychological and social and emotional health um, to make sure that they are ready for this process. Right. And, you know, I feel like this is a, a part of the church that is just not, we don't have a window into very often. And so to peel that back, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, part of it is like you realize that seminarians are, are just normal people like the rest of us, but also they are undertaking this very unique very different role in the church. And so their their needs and challenges are also unique. Yeah. So stick around for that. But before that, we'll have Signs of the Times. Uh, and this week, we are talking about Pope Francis's new head for the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith, uh, Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez. Uh, so we'll get into who he is and what this means for the direction of the Dicastery. And also, um, St. Jude's Arm is going on tour in the United States. So we'll let you know where you can see that. And what's on tap this week, Ashley? Uh, you have really just taken it upon yourself to step up your bartending game. Yes, I have this new new season, new bartender. I think I mentioned this last week too, but I, I'm, I'm repeating it again because I'm just stunned because this is another great yeah. drink. So, so for a long for time or a short time listeners of the show, I, I have a reputation of not um, knowing how to make drinks or, or, you know, making downgraded versions of well-known Yeah, you would take cocktails. a lot of shortcuts that yes. didn't really pay off. Yes. But this week we're having a grape fruit margarita with real grapefruit garnish yes. and real grapefruit juice. I remember one of my biggest sins was using like a, a grapefruit flavored soda seltzer kinda, or something yeah. like that and tequila. And it just, yeah, it didn't taste good. Yeah, so. so this is much better. All so right. Cheers. cheers. And now we have Signs of the Times, the part of the show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So the Inquisition. <laughs> It's back and better than ever. It's back, baby. No one expects it. Um, in all seriousness, uh, the office that used to be known as the Inquisition um, is now called the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. So this is the Vatican's sort of Catholic teaching office, right? Um, it has a someone new in charge. So Pope Francis earlier this summer appointed Archbishop Victor Manuel Fernandez as the new head of the Vatican's office for doctrine. And this week, he's out with an interesting interview from our fellow Jesuit journalist over in Rome at Lucha Vita Cattolica titled Life and Doctrine of the Faith, a Dialogue with Victor Emmanuel Fernandez, which we excerpted in America Magazine this yes, week. Yes, we have an exclusive English language excerpt um, that's really interesting. But before we get into what he said there, I do want to just, you you gave a brief introduction to the, the Dicastery for the Doctrine of the Faith. Um, but it's a really interesting office that has changed a lot under Pope Francis. It used to be known as La Suprema. It was no, it was like the top office in the Vatican because um, they're really like 
the enforcers of doctrine. So um, maybe you, you mentioned the Inquisition, but in the 20th century and 21st century, they were known for sometimes censoring theologians who were going a little bit too far in their teaching of doctrine. Yeah, and Francis, in, but even before he appointed uh, Archbishop Fernandez, and we should say he's going to be made a cardinal later this month. So he's really tried to shift the focus away from uh, enforcing Catholic doctrine or maybe going after rogue theologians that have pushed the envelope too far to more promoting the flourishing of Catholic thought and theology. But he did say some really interesting things to Archbishop Fernandez when he appointed him. Yeah. So in his letter, he said, quote, the dicastery that you will preside over in other epics came to use immoral methods, i.e., torture during the Inquisition. Um, Continuing, those were times when more than promoting theological knowledge, they chased after possible doctrinal errors. What I expect from you is something without doubt much difference. So that's like a huge shift (laughs) um, and a very explicit mandate from Pope Francis to Fernandez. Yeah, and this is um, one of Francis's close advisors. You know, it's he's been said to kind of be the Pope's trusted theologian throughout even his pontificate, <laughs> even ghostwriter. So um, someone who's been known as like a, a solid interpreter, mm-hmm. at the very least, of Pope Francis's yeah. thought. And we should say he's from Argentina, so their relationship yes. goes way back. Way, way, way back. And so for some of Francis's other writings and encyclicals, he's leaned heavily on some of the thought of Archbishop Fernandez, which is uh, rankled some people because he has said some controversial things that has people wondering what's going to be happening. Right. And probably the most controversial among those is he's expressed some opening to uh, the church blessing same-sex marriage and not in the not like a sacramental marriage kind of way, but some sort of blessing that pours grace upon these couples um, from the church. Uh, so not everyone is on board with that. Yeah. And it's an issue because we're seeing um, churches in Germany kind of go forward with this. So it's been brought to the Vatican's attention. Like, what are we going to do about this? Um, and he's been asked about it since he's been appointed. And he's sort of doubled down on that openness. So uh, he's he, he should say we should say that he has said it requires more study. So he's open mm-hmm. to studying it, but he's not saying an outright condemnation from the get-go, which but, is it, But in his position as head of this office, he's going to be the one who kind of sets the boundaries of where those studies can go. So that's really interesting. And yeah. so we'll keep you updated on that. Yeah. So he, t- he uh, officially took office this week, and then he'll be made a cardinal uh, later this month, just before the synod. Um, so I imagine we're going to hear a lot from Archbishop Fernandez in the future. But uh, for now, what's our next story, Ashley? So you've probably heard of the Taylor Swift Eras Tour, but have you heard of the Apostle of the Impossible Tour of the Relics of St. Jude I the haven't. Apostle? I haven't. But also, you took my joke that I had ready, locked, and loaded. Yes! <laughs> for this. So that's unfortunate. But uh, the good news is that St. Jude, the uh, this is the apostle of the apostle that you were referring to, um, his arm, his the relic of his arm, which is normally housed in St. Peter's Basilica in at the Vatican, is going on tour throughout the U.S., uh, mostly in the Midwest. Yeah. So it's already gone through Illinois. So if that's where you're living, I'm sorry, you're a bit too late. But you could hop over to Minnesota, Kansas, Nebraska, Michigan, and other states in the Midwest. And then I think it's eventually coming to the East Coast, but unclear. Yeah. More dates are being added to this tour all the time. Just um, like Taylor. I don't know. I <laughs> I was like, maybe if you can't get Eras Tour tickets, you could bring, I don't know, your Ticketmaster login account. To the church True, where it he, is. So he is known as the patron of lost causes, which yes. at this point getting a ticket to Taylor is basically. It's a lost cause. So um, maybe if you haven't been able to do that, try praying to St. Jude and maybe try go visiting his arm and that might help you out some. Now stick around for our conversation with Maribel Laguna. Joining us from Dallas, Texas, is Maribel Laguna. Maribel is the founder and owner of Core Sacrum Counseling and Consulting. She is also a board member of the Catholic Psychotherapy Association. Welcome to Jesuitical, Maribel. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a while since I've done a podcast, so. <laughs> well, this is going to be the best one, at least this year, I hope. But this is a fascinating topic that we're about to get into. I feel like this is something that not a lot of Catholics have any like experience with, unless they, they know someone who's personally like applied to seminary, kind of gone through it, or they've gone through it themselves. But it it's not like a secret process, right? Like This should be pretty 
right. out in the open. It's just I think it's one that most people don't know about a whole lot. Yeah. But before we get into your actual work uh, with seminarians, we do want to give some background of the church's relationship with psychology, because I imagine it's it's changed over time. So I'm wondering if you could pinpoint some of maybe where those inflection points were, like pre-Vatican II and post-Vatican II. Did the church's opinion of psychology and where it belongs in the church change? Well, I think I'm, I can do a little better than that and go back to World War One. Mm. <laughs> maybe between World War One and World War II. Two, which is the introduction of Freud. Mm. And so um, previously, previous to Freud, actually psychology was really taught kind of as a philosophy. And so it was taught in the philosophy department. And with the introduction of Freud, obviously um, the reductionistic view of the human person that was sort of introduced through his theory, um, then there was sort of this breakaway from um, philosophy, but then also a some tension with the church. Um, and when you say for like obvious reasons, you know? well, it's not obvious to everybody. I don't think like, is, is it because like, if tell me if I have this roughly correct, he, you know, reduced a lot of things to like sex and death drives. Like people only do things for those reasons. Right. And so, you know, that seems a little bit contrary to our anthropology. <laughs> and so there was obvious tension there. And that's probably the first misstep. Um, he obviously had his own issues <laughs> that he was working out through his theories. Uh, lots that we can learn from him, but some things that you know we just cannot accept as Catholics, which, you know, it's fine. It's like that with other scientists, too. And then eventually, when um, psych after World War II, psychology really came to the forefront as a discipline because people were trying to understand what was happening with World War II veterans. You know, they would come back and have shell shock syndrome. And so that really got us started um, and interested in what is happening here. You know, these people left for war and they were normal and they came back a different person. And so through that, you know, some other uh, theories were developed, a cognitive um, psychology, experimental psychology, um, behavioral psychology, et cetera, all these things. And what psychology did at that point to gain legitimacy as a discipline, it actually married itself to the scientific um, process. And so they said, you know what? We don't want to be a philosophy. We want to be a science because we want to, want to be taken seriously by our, you know, our professional community, by other professions. And in divorcing itself from philosophy, that also added to the tension and the division that existed between psychology and Catholicism. Um, we have not done ourselves a great favor in the 70s either, because in that process of, again, understanding what counseling is, um, really defining the therapeutic process and all the research that goes into that, uh, the Catholic Church invited counselors into religious mm -hmm. communities, and there are some um, documented histories of this where some counselors actually facilitated the disbanding of these communities through, um, some might argue, maybe unethical group therapy. Mm. This is a very, very delicate time in the church anyway. Vatican II is coming sure. out. People are leaving religious communities. And on top of that, we have this sort of unhealthy situation that's coming on. And so that created a lot of tension. In recent years, I would say that there's been more of a movement towards repairing some of that damage. And I think part of it is that, um, you know, psychology is a pretty new field in, in comparison to other fields. And we've done way more work just as a discipline and becoming ethical. You know, some of those unethical practices are now just like really looked down upon. You won't get accepted by review boards and that sort of thing. And so as we become more ethical, then that helps sort of create trust in our relationship with uh, the church community. At what point did these psychological evaluations become a formal part of the process of becoming a seminarian? Is that uh, post-2002 sex abuse crisis or did it come in earlier? Well, that's my understanding that it was um, post the sex abuse crisis. And I think that that movement has helped us 
as a discipline also improve our psychological evaluations, which I can't go into too much because I am not a psychologist. I don't do any of the psychological evaluations, but I do collaborate with um, evaluators. And so we are also improving our processes there, which is helping the church um, not just have a green light, red light, but also have ways of supporting the men in their growth. You know, uh, suggestions as to how that can be done in seminary, you know, some things to look out for, um, where what issues need to be addressed, et cetera. Now, I know you said you're looking to move beyond sort of a green light, red light dichotomy, but I'm curious, what are some like maybe red flags or green flags or maybe yellow flags? Like this is something to watch, but we, we need to just like be aware of it and keep an eye on it if that come up in some of these psyche valves. Well, um, I will just speak about this very, very superficially because, again, I am, I'm not an evaluator, not a psychologist, so I, I want to make sure that I stay within my scope. But the ones that you know, I'm familiar with is like a full-blown personality disorder. You're probably going to get a red light. Mm-hmm. You know, that's not a, a person that's healthy enough to be in a position um, such as church leadership. But it's, we can see this in other professions as well, right? Um, we don't necessarily want teachers who are antisocial personality disorder. Um, that would not be healthy. Okay. And then what are the kind of middle areas where the, there are issues that you see a lot from a lot of different guys and they, they might not be complete red flags, but there they are issues that come up frequently enough that you see, see a trend. This um, I can speak to because these are probably the people that end up in my counseling room. You know, they've, they've been given, we'll say, a green light, but um, the, there's things that need to be worked through. And the issues that come up are not any different than any issues that come up for other young adults. I, I just want to speak to the fact that young adults today um, are really suffering. Many people are calling uh, the silent generation, Gen Z, the most lonely generation. And from that experience of loneliness comes a lot of different issues. Um, you know, some of the sexual issues that are very common, again, in our society in this um, age group are sometimes um, engaging in sexual acts before marriage that causes for some people trauma. And so these men come from the society and our society right now is hurting. And, you know, the, I would say that some other difficulties that come up, and this is very, very prominent, not just again in seminarians, but also in a lot of young men is pornography and the addiction to pornography is, is very prevalent because currently the age of exposure is around eight, eight years old. And so, you know, children don't have really the tools to be able to understand what's going on, what they're being exposed to. Um, So we would say some, you know, issues around sexuality, family of origin issues. You know, we all have family of origin issues. So you're questioning like, what the heck did my parents do? What did they do right? What did they do wrong? And negotiating that um, in order to become your own person and acknowledging like what, how your parents hurt you how other people in your life hurt you and how that has affected you and your ability to develop into the person you were meant to be. Um, of course, trauma, you know, everyone, we always differentiate between big T trauma, little T trauma. Probably all of us have some sort of trauma. I mean, we went through a pandemic that's traumatic. And so um, kind of working through that trauma, maybe like a fourth issue would be um, just understanding what it means to be a male. Again, this, this, it's really important for a man who's preparing for seminary life to understand healthy masculinity. And again, we're getting all these messages in our culture. Some people would argue it's an over-sexualized culture. And so our understanding of what it means, means to be male or female, I mean, it's just a lot of, it's pretty confusing. <laughs> I don't know how we all made it. <laughs> it sounds like a lot of stuff that Freud guy was talking about seemed like they're still the same issues. Some would say. <laughs> um, what are seminaries and dioceses looking for from these like sort of uh, psyche vows or counseling sessions, you know, in, in, is a way to kind of support the, the seminarians? Uh, the language that the 
PPF uses the program for priestly formation. They just came out with a new one. I think it was written 2019. Um, you can only get the bridge version on the USCCB website. And this is just like a big document that sort of like gives. Yeah, big document. Got it. it and guidelines for how to form priests in training. Exactly. And... They're talking about okay. affective maturity. And affective maturity just means like knowing who you are internally and then using that insight to make a choice about whether or not you want to give yourself as a gift to the church. Now, affective maturity is not all, it should not only be in the way that we assess if men are ready for priesthood. It should also be a way if we assess if a man is ready for marriage. You cannot give the gift of yourself if you don't know who the heck you are. Uh, you can't be a true gift of self if you also don't know how to restrain certain parts of who you are and have boundaries with that in a relationship. And so it's um, self-knowledge, self-restraint in order to be self-gift. And you can only do that by going through those stages of affective maturity. Well, you mentioned before that a lot of the uh, issues you see in the counseling room reflect the broader culture. And one thing that is happening in the broader culture is, you know, adolescence has been extended. Um, we stay in school longer. We are putting off those adult uh, benchmarkers like getting married and having kids and buying a house. Um, so I'm wondering what's what's the seminary equivalent of this kind of like shifting the timeline back um, is is the church adapting to that? Like, should we be having priests join at, or become priests at later stages to, you know, you know, acknowledge that they may not have reached that maturity when a generation ago people are reaching it? Yeah, I, I would say that the church is very much intentional in responding to the needs of the current culture. And one way that they're doing that is by incorporating the propedeutic gear. It's actually a year of preparation. And so in the year of preparation, the main focus is kind of teaching the men about human formation. And so just to sort of operationalize for a minute, human formation, it's like all the stuff you should have learned in your family, but didn't. So it can be something like practical skills, like how do you balance a budget? How do you prepare a meal? How do you cook? Um, some other things is like, how do you identify your emotions? What do you do with those? Um, maybe another thing is like, when you have conflict, how do you handle that? And so again, all these things that we should have learned in the domestic church that some young adults are not learning because they're the product of the snowplow parenting generation. And so we have moved from helicopter parenting to snowplow parenting. <laughs> and so parents are removing all sorts of discomfort for children and doing it for them, which is delaying their ability to grow up. So when I think of seminary, it's you're kind of set apart from the world. And you're not, I, it, it seems like if you were going to have this preparatory year that you need would need to be thrown into the world a little bit. So does it take place in seminary or is it kind of you're guided in the real world, but, you know, have a touch point with the seminary? Well, every diocese is doing it differently. So I don't know what other dioceses are doing um, per se. I, I know for, for a fact that the diocese in Denver, Phoenix, like they were ahead of the game. They're like the golden children. Um, they've had a propaganda gear for I don't know how long. And they um, actually have a house of formation. And um, in Dallas, they're actually living at the seminary, but there is some aspect of missionary work. There's some aspect of pastoral work. But again, the main part is the human formation piece. This does get, a, I would say, a fundamental just like square peg in a round circle, which is that seminaries historically are kind of like this set apart model, right? You're going to like mm -hmm. go over here and live with a bunch of dudes and for eight years, and then we're going to spit you out on the other side to go live by yourself and live with the world, right? And live in the world around all kinds of people, men and women. In your experience, can you have like a, a real like healthy, emotional psycho formation set apart like that? Or do you see us maybe moving towards a more integrated model in order to help these guys once they get out of seminary? 
Well, I will speak to the fact that there are great efforts in trying to get the men exposed to what's happening with the laity. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. It's like we we need these men to understand, like, it's not pretty out there. And like the things that the laity are struggling with, like they're hard. They're really hard. Um, and, you know, I know some first year priests, they're like, man, confession. I come out of confession. I'm like, I never knew like it could be this bad. Hmm. But you also have to th- kind of balance that out. Like pastoral formation also have to has to be balanced with the human formation because JP2 says the human formation is the most important. And so if we're having men, again, a, a generation of young men and women that are already delayed in adolescence and we want to sort of meet them where they are, and introduce them into the world little by little, which they do through pastoral assignments and those sorts of things. But it would not be healthy for anyone if we just threw them in the deep end. Well, I think from the ladies' perspective, often I've heard countless times from people who this young priest comes in acting like he owns the place, makes changes without consulting the people. And, and you know, they're like, who's this 27-year-old guy telling us what to do? We had a great functioning parish over here. Or he, it's like he hasn't talked to a woman in eight years yeah. and is weird around women. I've also heard, heard and experienced that. <laughs> I'll also kind of quote something that was written during the pandemic, which is there should be more women involved in seminary formation. And I think it was a bishop, and I, I can't remember which one, so you'll have to um, fact check me on that. Um, yeah, I think obviously the relationship with women is important because you're how many, what percentage of, well, especially in the Hispanic church, most of the attendees are women. It's like, how are you going to relate to them? And so I think what you're speaking to or, ask, or kind of pressing back on is like, are they able to be with the people? And what is it that we're doing in seminary that may or may not facilitate their ability to be with the people? And I would say that in counseling, what's within my pay grade is like, heck, I'm trying to help them be with the people. They can't be with the people if they haven't worked through their own stuff. And, you know, I'm also curious, like, uh, what kind of guys are do you do you see that are joining seminary today? <laughs> I really love my job and I I really enjoy my clients and so I am very partial towards like my view of the sem- my seminary clients. Um I see eager young men who just want to do right. Like they they want to be an instrument of good in the world. And it happens that they've just had at times a hard life and they've been hurt in different ways. And that though that hurt has kept them from really being able to understand themselves fully as good and lovable and accepted. And as a result, they kind of feel drawn to this vocation but it's also like an opportunity for them to work through that so that they can arrive at that place where they really understand themselves as a gift to the church. Um, but again, you can't give the gift of yourself if you haven't received the gift of who you are. And that's really kind of what therapy is about, is giving a person kind of like this mirror. It's like, wow, I see so much good in you but you've been hurt and that's why you've made these mistakes or fallen into kind of these unhealthy relationships or whatever. And so let's work through that. Let's work through that so that you can be a mirror to other people as well. That makes sense. I mean, there are ways to like turn the priesthood into a grift and get rich, but I don't think most guys are looking around being like, oh man, those priests like- Get the rectory all to myself. (laughs) It's going to be so easy. What a, what a cushy job I have. I I think, I think you're probably right. Most guys are like, they generally just like have good intentions when they sign up. Um, Have you noticed that there's like a difference between like the type of client you have of someone who maybe entered seminary either right out of high school or right out of college versus someone who has a bit more life experience. Maybe they go to a college, have a, a career. And based on that, do you have like a, 
a recommendation for if you were advising, you know, the bishops come to you say, hey, we're thinking about tightening our entrance requirements to require like some college or something like that? Like, what would you say? Well, I personally think that life is the best teacher. <laughs> and I, I hear this a lot in my family because I'm first generation American. And, you know, some of my family, they don't have an extensive educational background, but man, they're wise. Like the, the things that they've learned through their suffering, you know, through coming to this country with very limited means and kind of had to figure it out, like that has really taught them wisdom. And so I do think that having life experience goes a long way. Uh, as a 40 something year old with gray hair, I'm a way better therapist than I was when I was 20 something seven or whatever and that really is because of life experience and you know that's just common sense um maybe it's co just common sense to me and so i do think that life experience would help people better prepare for a vocation to the priesthood and are you seeing that like on the ground oh yeah mm. yeah yeah because i mean just think about like 18 verses 21 you do so much development in college. I mean, you have like your first fight with your friends. You might have like your first girlfriend. You might travel abroad. You might be living with strangers for the first time in a dorm room. You might be alone in a new city. Like all of that, it just gives you so much maturity and gives you so many skills that you can't teach in a classroom. Hmm. Sounds like everyone should do what the Jesuits do. <laughs> Oh, you're so partial to the Jesuits. <laughs> well, you know, they just have built in <laughs> some some life experience, some education, <laughs> a lot of waiting. But no, um, I do want to ask you about um, some comments Pope Francis has made about um, younger priests and seminarians. He hasn't always had the most uh, sympathetic words. He's he's often uh, described um, some younger priests as as rigid or authoritarian. Mm. Um, do you think Pope Francis is Onto something, or would you think that's unfair? What What are you seeing? <laughs> well, I guess like what I want to answer Pope Francis's <laughs> comment with like another question is like this is a classic therapist move, by the way. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, when When have you seen a young adult who didn't think they knew everything? <laughs> I guess I shouldn't assume this. I, I there I get this assumption that some of these young men you know, feel like they are set apart and maybe maybe a little higher, like clericalism is still a real thing. I hear you. <laughs> so I would say, yeah, what's your approach to um, combating clericalism well, especially among like your when clients? You're like a young guy that like signs up for seminary and not everyone's doing it. It's a bit like, I don't know, like people, when you go home, everyone's like, oh, thanks so much for what you're doing. Like, oh, I'm so happy that, you know, our youth group produced this you know, vocation, like there's a lot riding on it. And then I'm sure you, it's hard not to feel like the apple of God's eye. <laughs> I think I can share a personal bit of information that might be helpful here, which is um, my brother was in seminary for a while. And when he would come home, I would say, my job is to keep you humble. <laughs> and I really do try to apply that in my work my therapy office is a place where you're like every young adult, okay? And I, as a professional, cannot endorse and cannot necessarily baby my clients because then it's actually counter-therapeutic. I'm not seeing how they can rise above. I'm not seeing how they can, I'm not, then I'm not validating their ability to cope through difficult things, right? I, I need to, strengthen their backbone to help them stand on their own two feet. And so in the therapeutic setting, the therapeutic boundaries sort of help keep clericalism out of the therapy room. Now, I do have a just like a saying that I tell a lot of people in formation, and it's like a running joke, but I think there's a lot of truth to it, which is um, calluses before chalices. Mm. <laughs> And what do I mean by that? It's like, dude, go out there and like mow a lawn. <laughs> do you know how much you learn from mowing a lawn? 
it's not easy. And I, I do think that there has is some space for that. Calluses before chalices. How as a church are we also as a laity responsible for that? And how is it that we as laity even participate in our daily interactions with priests? Um, and we sort of put them up on this pedestal. Well, that's on us too. I totally agree. I mean, a lot of even like Catholics that say they're the most against clericalism still love their, you know, their priest to be a little clerical from time to time. So I think that we 100% participate in that. And so I'm glad you're there. Like yep. a, a good big sister should be <laughs> keeping them all humble all the time. Maribel, I do want to go back to um, something we touched on very briefly earlier. Um, and so I want to ask you about the the issue of homosexuality in, in the priesthood and in seminaries, because it's become, I think, especially since the sex abuse crisis, it's become this flashpoint in the church where, you know, yeah. Pope Benedict made some comments about how there shouldn't be gay people in the priesthood. Pope Francis fam famously said, who am I to judge if you're a gay priest? And so there's just, it's such a hot button issue in the church. And so I am curious how when a seminarian comes to you, says, you know, I'm gay, do I belong here? What is my experience gonna be through this formation process? Um, what, what are you saying to them? You know, I I will sort of approach this topic just like from a therapeutic heart, uh, because I, I do think that there's a lot of men out there that are suffering um, as a result of kind of these messages that they're hearing. And we need to be charitable and just like human about this. There are a lot of men in the priesthood who are struggling with same-sex attraction. And so I, I just want to honor that. Okay, that's that's not an easy path to be on when, you know, the church has made very clear, very clear um, delineations between who gets accepted and who doesn't or who moves on and who doesn't. So I, I just want to like kind of leave space for that. And there's sometimes not a common language between the church and psychology and there are some great psychologists out there that are trying to define what this means for the counseling field, for the psychological field, um, because it, when we work hand in hand with the church, you know, the clarity of language actually does help. Um, and so to kind of give you a broad, broad answer is that in dealing with this, um, with men who are already ordained and struggling with same-sex attraction, and working with seminarians who might be struggling with same-sex sex attraction when it's not 100% clear if it's transitory or deep-seated, that we need to approach this with like a pastoral heart. And as a therapist, if I am judgmental about those things, that usually doesn't go well. Okay, it's not at the service of the man. And, you know, in guiding men in figuring out what that is for them, um, there's a lot of gray, but also at the end of the day, I don't make the decisions. Um, I don't make the decisions about whether someone advances or doesn't. And so I, I need to be very careful and stay within my pay grade with that. You know, I, I would counsel them like I would do any other young adult who's struggling with these things. But I, at the end of the day, the, I am very clear with the man that I don't make the decisions about whether they advance or not. Well, does does deep-seated homosexuality mean someone who's unable to, or really struggling to keep their vow of chastity? Because the church makes it very clear that same-sex attraction in itself is not is not sinful. It's 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 the act. Right. I think we get so caught up in the in the. I mean, for lack of a better word, like we just get caught up in like the same sex piece, but really the church is asking all the men to be celibate, okay? Whether that be with um, a same sex partner, opposite sex partner, it's like one year of continence before ordination. Um, 
that's really what we're moving towards. It's like the affect of maturity, which kind of helps with the sexual integration so that the person can make a free choice of celibacy. But of course, you need to have like a whole year of like you were before you actually take vows. And I'm sure celibacy is an issue for most most of the men. What is what's your counseling approach to preparing a man to make that serious of a vow? Yeah, because you said you t- try to approach seminarians with like the, the same perspective as most young adults, but most young adults are not really preparing for lives of celibacy. I think a lot of young adults struggle with sexuality, and it's a slow road for a lot of people. But it's also a road that has a lot of um, holes, and we have to figure out where the holes come from. Sometimes it is an experience of sexual trauma. Sometimes it's an early exposure to pornography. Sometimes, you know, so like those holes, again, regardless if it's like same sex or opposite sex, exist for all young adults. Let's figure what those are. Want to pivot a little bit towards. Um, Formation after seminary, um, because I think my perspective was one of the things I was afraid of when I was thinking about, you know, maybe joining seminary or becoming a priest was like, it seems like there's this model of like, come be formed for eight years and then we're like, live in community. This will be great. And then you get dropped off to live with like an old guy in the rectory and you're lonely and you're basically abandoned for the rest of your career. Yeah. Um, which mm-hmm. I think is the experience for a lot of guys. Is, is there an attitude that's like, trying to move away from that or what kind of ongoing like human formation uh, do you see being provided for or even professional development like most fields you <laughs> you have something that comes after graduation that you need yeah yeah I mean the USCCB actually has very clear directives on this um, the new PPF is also supporting what the USCCB is saying and is emphasizing like hardcore ongoing formation, ongoing formation, you're not done. And I think yeah, like, heck, that's true for marriage. <laughs> you're like, oh, well, another issue to work through. Oh, another. And then that's how you're going to get to heaven, right? And so, yeah, ongoing formation is key. Um, I would say that a lot of priests are making efforts towards um, creating community. And there's different movements, and there's some that are official, some that are more um, you know, like grassroots, but I think that there is a need to kind of combat that isolation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like you kind of get feel a little tricked, right? Because you were in community. That's one of the pillars, like community life, all this stuff, building the brotherhood. And then like you are, we'll say an hour away from even another priest. Well, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. And so how can we like none of us were made to live in isolation unless like you have a very special calling like a hermit which a lot of us don't and so it's like how how do we work towards building community but also like a community of learning um i know like in certain dioceses they have like convocation and during that time they bring in speakers like tomorrow i'm speaking at a deanery event um i do think that there's a lot of movement in that direction um, also, like places like the St. Luke Institute um, offer online ongoing formation for clergy. I mean, they have a great library of resources. So anyway, just some things to give us hope there. <laughs> yeah. I, earlier, I was a little critical of the, the the stereotype of the young authoritarian priest coming into a parish and um, changing everything. But I'm sure that is not most most young priests. I'm sure most young priests come in enthusiastic and maybe a little overwhelmed. So I'm wondering from your experience, um, what advice you would give to parishioners and lay people to, you know, support these young priests um, as as they start out in their in their ministry? I would honestly just offer a meal. Mm. I think it can be something as simple as that. Again, when they eat with them, year. not that you drop off like a casserole. A casserole. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. It should be a meal. They're normal sit down. people, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like just like some just stay normal. Like do ordinary things. Invite them to like a baseball game. Invite them to come over for dinner. Um 
whatever. Like, I, I just think like if they can be integrated into our ordinary life, like that, that is mutually fulfilling. Um, I have a priest friend in another city and he, he um, was part of our group and part of our board. And he's like, you don't know how great it is for me to just like hang out and have dinner with y'all um, and have normal conversations. You know, I think sometimes, um, again, as a laity, we kind of struggle with this. We're like, oh yes, a priest, I can ask him all my spiritual questions. Mm. Dude, he's off the job. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about baseball. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about other things that are not church related. <laughs> Amen. Uh, Maribel, thanks so much for uh, coming on the show and discussing all this and for all the work that you do in your own ministry and career. We do have one final question before we let you go that we ask all of our guests. And Oof. that is, <laughs> if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, fictional or real, who would it be and why? Oh, <laughs> see, now you're going to get me emotional because I didn't was not prepared for the question. Um, but I really would um, encourage that the church canonize my parents. What are their I names? I think that they're um, Ismael and Raquel. Their example of marriage is has been such a witness, not just to me, but to our church community and I think our family. And it has inspired, I, I know for a fact, some vocations like to the priesthood just by their living example of marriage. But it's like a tough example to follow, but it's an invitation for the domestic church. Like, what the heck are we doing in the domestic church that is either raising or inspiring future vocations or not? And I think we can all ask ourselves that question, really look in the mirror and say like, you know, we, we, we look towards like the priesthood, like, oh, all these problems in the priesthood, blah, blah. Okay, dude, like we're raising these men. Like what, and so I, I just like really admire my parents for giving us sort of that safe space, that domestic church where where we could grow in our vocation and and their yeah their inspiration to others. And I'm really grateful for that. Awesome, Maribel. If people want to find some of your work or your counseling services. Where can where can they go? They could probably just Google me, but um, they can um, visit our website, which is www.coresacrumcounseling.com or follow us on social media. Um, we post on lots of different things. So, All like, right. Awesome. Like we all do. We're all posting on lots of different things all the time. Uh, Maribel, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Tell me what you want with me. Is it just some rest you need An escape from the world oh, Then let's escape the world Am I in the high Are you bouncing Up and down Far above ground Am I in your core muscles Twisting all right, now it's time for Parish Announcements, the part of our show where we ask you to please be seated before the final blessing. Uh, want to do a quick shout out to new Patreon supporters that signed up in the last week. Uh, so huge thank you to Nick Renpage, Lisa Durham, and Daniel Bowen. Uh, they're able to access our bonus conversation with Father James Martin about whether or not Lazarus is the beloved disciple, our conversation from earlier this summer about what the Catholic Church can learn from Major League Baseball's change uh, to the pitch clock um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So if you would like to support the show and get access to all of our bonus episodes and other Patreon exclusive content, you can head to patreon.com slash America Media. There's also a link in your show notes. And if you want to see Jesuitical in person, we are going on the road this season. We've got a few things in the works. Um, we'll, we will certainly tell you the cities and dates when those are settled. But like Zach said last week, if you'd like us to come to your diocese or parish or university, uh, please just send us an email. Um, it's jesuitical at americamedia.org. And now we have As One Friend Speaks to Another, the part of our show where we talk about where we're finding God in our lives this week. 
Uh, and this week, I want to kind of build on what you talked about last week um, when you talked about going to the Church of the Miraculous Metal, which was made by Catherine Labore, who then, after she made this thing that is one of the most popular Catholic objects of all time, she just went and quietly worked serving the elderly and, and the sick um, and wasn't really heard of ever again. So like this idea of like silent, hidden service being really important. But it also made me think about how joyful service is also really important if you're going to attract new people to your work. Like Pope Francis or a lot of popes have talked about how the gospel is spread through attraction. I guess that was Benedict, wasn't it? Um, but anyways, but I think there's something similar happening with service, which should go hand in hand with, you know, following the gospel. Um, but I was thinking about uh, this volunteering I do with a group called Achilles International. And the way I got into it is one day I was running in uh, Prospect Park, the park near my house, and I was really sick and I was feeling like, so I was walking, I wasn't running, <laughs> but I wasn't <laughs> feeling great. And then this group goes past me and they're like singing and laughing and wearing these bright neon yellow shirts and I was just like I want what they have <laughs> mm. and so like they it had the name Achilles International written on the shirt so I just like googled it and found out it's this group that um, it partners people to go on runs or walks with people with um, physical or developmental disabilities um, it, so I was like oh that that sounds like something I could do so like from my phone I signed up and uh, went the next week and it's become this just like a highlight of my week every week going to to run with these with these folks and and I wouldn't have either heard of them or googled them or joined it if there hadn't been that spark of joy that mm. just like drove my curiosity to want to know more and and be a part of it. Yeah, it's interesting because it's we're supposed to do like talking about Catherine Labre. It's like quiet service, but also you're not supposed to hide what mm -hmm. you're doing either, right? And so walking that line of being like visible without being boastful. Mm -hmm. and, and and joyful without you know drawing attention to your yourself yeah. is like a really hard line to walk that only really saints pull off i feel like sometimes um yeah it, it is a hard line but the people i've met through this group uh definitely walk it um and they, or run it yeah run it yep and so if this is something you're interested achilles is in different cities around the country so i'd encourage you to to check them out um but it's a bit it's been a really great blessing for me over the past um few months yeah and i love that you picked something that's outside of the church because it's i mean ideally we would see this from within the church all the time but we can definitely learn something um, from groups that like model this joyful service from on the, outside the church too totally all right i'll get us out of here jesuitical is produced by sebastian gomes with production assistance from michael o'brien and kevin christopher robles who is also our sound engineer faith formation provided by father eric sundrup you can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And if you're on Apple or Spotify, leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loshirt Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.